want to encourage you again, Friday night, come out. You don't want to miss that, uh, especially as we prepare for Easter Sunday. We're going to poignantly wrap up um, this series that we're calling The Shadows. This is a, a series that uh, I've kind of based off of, even though I haven't been here the last Sunday. Uh, I've worked with uh, Steve last week, and, and we, we, we wanted to build it around Holy Week. And some folks have come up to me and they said, well, tell me what you mean by the shadows and what are you trying to get across? What's the point of, of these talks? So here, here's what I did. As I was looking at Easter this year, I went back and, you know, I'm always trying to think about where the, what we should talk about. And so I started looking at the historical church calendar. Um, if you've been around the church or you grew up in the church, maybe the Protestant church or the Catholic church, and uh, maybe you've attended Good Friday services or, or what are called Maundy Thursday services. That's another kind of religious word um, that a lot of us don't know what that means. But um, there are services that are held during Holy Week, um, this week where Jesus rises into Jerusalem that you know, culminates with his, his um, death and resurrection. There's a service. It's usually a Good Friday service. It's called a tenebrae service. Anybody, raise your hand if you've heard this term, tenebrae service. Okay, a lot more of you than in the first service. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm researching this and I'm going, a tenebrae service, that's interesting. I don't know what that means. Um, but, you know, if you're kind of uh, hanging around the church like I, I did when I first came into the church, you know, I got to kind of fake it, right? Tenebrae service, absolutely love the tenebrae service. Love it. <laughs> Can't hang out tonight, guys, tenebrae down at church. I have no idea what that meant. Um, so I started working on it. What does that mean? Like, why do they have a tenebrae service? You know, why does the church enter a tenebrae service uh, at this time of year? So I looked it up. You know what tenebrae is? It's actually just a Latin word, and it means the shadows. Pretty interesting. And so a traditional tenebrae service, and in a sense, will follow this Friday night. What you have in a traditional tenebrae service is that over time, over the period that the service is re reflecting on those last moments of Jesus' life, gradually the room is getting darker and darker and candles are getting put out and eventually the room is plunged into darkness. And the thought being that we, we kind of experience that moment of Jesus' death. So that it's kind of a cool thing, and, and, and I liked it, but it's, it's one, of those, one of those things that struck me the most was that word, the shadows. I couldn't get past it. I kept thinking about it, the shadows. And so as I researched this week of Jesus' death, I read the stories of Holy Week, that theme of shadows began to haunt me a little bit. Um, if you look at the stories of what went on during Jesus' last week on earth, you see lots of people of great faith and goodwill. And you see lots of people, in a sense, full of darkness. But the most interesting thing is, they're often the same people. Light and dark. Good and evil. Kind of intertwined. I mean, look at today, right? We just prayed through it a little bit together. Most of the people in Jerusalem running out to the streets to praise the name of Jesus, many of whom would be the same people in the streets uh, a few days later when they're given the choice between freeing Barabbas or, or allowing, uh, allowing Jesus to walk on the streets, they say, we want Barabbas, crucify Jesus. Sometimes I do that. Not about Barabbas, but about some of the things in my own life. You know, well, I'd rather walk away from Jesus and pursue this. I mean, you look at the stories, right? Uh, look at Peter. He's sitting with Jesus at the Last Supper. This is Peter, okay? If you're from a Catholic background, my dad is Catholic, right? Like, I, 
Peter is like, he's the man. I mean, he's, he's who the Pope, you know, Peter's theoretically kind of commissioned the, the papacy, he's the first Pope. And like, my dad would say, don't say a word bad about Peter in here or you're going to get put out. And so I don't, and there's not a lot bad to say about Peter except this, he's a lot like us. And so here's Peter at the Last Supper. And Jesus is trying to foretell them what's going to happen. And here's what's going to happen going forward, guys. It's likely it's going to play out that I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put to death. And Peter jumps up and goes, there is no way that's happening. Trust me, Jesus. I have your back. I will follow you. These are Peter's words. I will follow you even unto death. You know the story. A couple hours later, denial. A couple hours later, Denial. A couple hours later, denial. So who's Peter? Is he a faithful follower of Jesus? Or is he a denier? Is he a turncoat? Who are you? Who am I? I mean, the story of Holy Week, you see people inflamed with the hope uh, the, the triumphal entry, inflamed in what could, the promise of what could be. And then the same week you see people, many of the same people, just completely overwrought in despair. In the story of the Holy Week, you see the light of the power of political office and its ability to right wrongs, to set the innocent free. And you also see the shadow of political self-preservation. You see in the Holy Week the power of religion to uphold the name and the character of God Almighty, while at the same time you see the shadow of what religion does as it literally crucifies the one who became known as the very Word of God. In this story, there is light and there is darkness in me, in you. There is light, there is darkness. Who are we? And so today, this Palm Sunday, Friday night, we're going to look at a lot of shadows dramatically played out. Sunday morning, we're going to look at the Easter Sunday morning, we're going to look at the light of life. But today, this, this last gathering before Good Friday, I want to talk to you about faith and its shadow, doubt. When I was a first became a believer. I met, my, I met my wife and her family was a very strong Christian family. It made me wonder what it is I believed. And so I started going to the church of my youth, you know, where I spent Christmas and Easter and that was about it. And um, I started attending service and I would sit there in the pew and there was a good man that was the pastor up there and he would stand up there. And you know what I'd think to myself? I wonder if this guy really believes this. You know, I wonder if he really believes this. Because let's be honest, some of the stuff we say we believe is, you know, not easy to believe, if you want to be honest. And so I'd sit there, and, uh, and I, I would always wonder, I wonder if this guy ever, ever doubts. I wonder if he ever questions his faith. And, and if you're around the church long enough, or you're in the church long enough, or you pastor a church long enough, there's three kind of common things that people come to talk to their pastor about. Like when people come and they say, John, I need to talk to you, and it needs to be, can, you know, it can be in private. Um, heard another pastor say this the other day, it's true. Uh, folks are usually are coming to talk about something that has to do with sex, Something that has to do with money, or they come and they go, You ever doubt this? I just, I want to, you know, do you ever doubt it? Um, I had somebody, a friend of mine said, so she said, Every time I get confused, I think, Well, John's smart and he believes it. 
Um, and see, I never doubt because sinners doubt. Of course, I, of course sometimes I doubt. I'm a human being. I mean, this is the human condition. The issue is not if you doubt. The issue is what you do in the moment of doubt. You see, here's the deal. At the end of the day, this is how you can settle doubt. I'm going to show, I mean, the story of God in this today and in our doubts is just so profound and so full of grace. But at the end of the day, my faith, what returns me to strong belief, where I go when I have those moments of doubt, and I'm going to show you why those moments of doubt come up. Where I go in those moment of, uh, moments of doubt is what brings me back to full and firm belief. Because here's the deal. At the end of, our, at the, end of the day, my faith does not... I'm going to make a controversial statement here. Ready? Get your emails ready. My faith is not based purely on Jesus Christ. My faith does not hinge on the person, the historical person of Jesus Christ. My faith, my belief, hinges on an actual historic moment in time. You see, both biblical and non-biblical sources, all kinds of non-biblical sources, both sources that are friendly to the story of the scripture and unfriendly to it, readily admit the historical veracity of Jesus. I mean, heck, most competing faith systems in the world don't deny the historical Jesus. In fact, many of them venerate the historical Jesus and his teaching. Jesus' words as a philosopher and his teacher are held up all over the Western world. Our legal system, our civic codes are based off of his, his sayings. The golden rule in loving your neighbor and treating the others the way you'd like to be treated. Loving your enemies, being humble and generous and kind and compassionate. Jesus spoke of all these things. Jesus spoke of radical ideas about grace and turning the other cheek. And see, then something interesting happened. He was crucified and died. And if that was the end of the story, all those sayings are kind of meaningless. But you see, what happens through the resurrection of Jesus is that now the epicenter of our faith, the thing, on, the, things, the thing on which our faith hangs, is not the teachings of Jesus. Hear me now. The teachings of Jesus are the words of God. They're profound. Okay? They have the power to change lives. I also need you to understand something. There are lots of truths out there. By the way, everything that's true is not necessarily just found in the Bible. Because everything that's true is from God. There have been lots of good teachers my faith hinges not just on Jesus' teaching. My faith hinges on Jesus' resurrection. Because if Jesus is not resurrected, here's what the Bible teaches. I'm a fool. Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, if you're familiar with the scriptures, most of the New Testament are letters that Paul wrote to churches. He himself did not believe in Jesus. He himself was one of the original persecutors of the church. But Paul had an experience with the risen Jesus Christ. He's what they would call in legal terms a hostile witness. Right? So if you're going to believe a witness, Paul would be one you'd believe. And here's what Paul says about the resurrection in his letter to the church at Corinth. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. Later on he goes to say, 
If Jesus Christ didn't raise from, isn't risen from the dead, we are to be the most pitied of fools. You see, my faith is not just based on the fact that Jesus lived and died. My faith is based on Jesus Christ is the only one who has ever been resurrected from the dead. See, I have doubts, but when I forget that my faith is hinged, or, or when I start to think it's, it's, it, that I'm giving myself away, my life away, uh, just because of the Bible, or just because of Christianity, or just because of religion, or just because of Jesus' teaching, doubt can creep in. But let me tell you something. When somebody predicts his own death and resurrection and pulls it off, and it can be proven that it really happened, I have to stop and think. And the doubt starts to go away. This is why the followers of Jesus, though days earlier they had been paralyzed by fear and doubt and they're holed up in a room and, in, and a couple days later they roar back into the streets of Jerusalem. Suddenly, people that were afraid to be identified with them, afraid to be persecuted, afraid of death, suddenly they stream into the streets and they start doing crazy things and saying, you know what, it turns out he was who he said he was. And they did it because, not, of, not because of what they believed, they did it because of what they had seen. And so here's the deal. This is good news, okay? For every follower of Jesus who've ever, who's ever lived, at least every honest one, and I think this is a good news story for most of us, it is for me, if you go back in the, in, in the Bible and you look at all the first century followers of Jesus, 100% of them had doubts about who he was. You know the stories, right? His brother thought he was a fool. His mother and father were really uncertain of who he was. As one other pointed out, I think it's true. He said, for Jesus' earliest followers and for most of us in the room, those doubts about who he is tend to fall into one of two buckets. One of two questions, that, that voice in your head maybe that comes along and goes, starts to spring up doubt. It always asks you one of two questions. Here's the first one. Is it true? Is this true? Is Jesus really the Son of God? Is Jesus really who he said he was? Is Jesus really risen from the dead? Can I really still connect and share reality with, with this, man, this God-man today? Is it true? The second question that echoes through eternity is this. Is it worth it? I mean, if it is true, if, it's, if he is who he said he was, is it worth the sacrifice involved in choosing the path of following this man? I want to give you a couple of great examples of this so you can understand and maybe feel a little bit better about your own struggles. I think you'll see how when doubt, when it almost always sneaks in, and how it can wreck your life if you don't know how to deal with it. First is a story almost all of you know. If you've never been to church before, you've probably heard this story. And it's again back to Peter, right? The rock that Jesus said upon whom he was going to build his church. Peter, who sat there at the Last Supper and said, Jesus, don't worry about me. I'll never abandon you. See, Peter was always a little impulsive. He always, you know, my dad used to say when I would, we'd go out to restaurants and I'd order the adult meal and he would give me a lecture about how my eyes were always bigger than my mouth, right? And so this is kind of Peter with his faith. His words are always a little bit bigger than, uh, than his actuality. And so some of you know the story about when Peter is out on the boat uh, uh, with, with uh, some other disciples and a storm kicks up. Now watch, here comes impulsive Peter in Matthew chapter 14. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them. Jesus is now himself walking on the water out towards uh, the disciples who were in the midst of this storm on the lake. 
And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It's I. Don't be afraid. And so here comes impulsive Peter, right? Lord, if it's you, Peter. Can't you see the other guys rolling their eyes at him? Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. So Jesus says, come. And Peter gets out of the boat and he walks on the water. And he comes toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And he began to sink and he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And so here's Peter, full of enough faith to get out of the boat. See, we mock Peter and say, oh, he had such little faith. See, he got scared and he chickened out. Peter got out of the boat. Everybody else stayed in. This is a story of the greatness of Peter's faith. He's the only one that had the guts to actually, he says, Jesus, if you tell me to come, I'll come. Maybe you've gotten there. Maybe you've been at there, that place in your life where you've gotten to a point. Maybe you've been going to church and you're starting to say, you know what? I think Jesus might be who he said he is. And Lord, I think I might be willing to follow you. I think I'm, I might be willing to, to, to kind of give my life away to this man. And maybe you've said, I'm going to get out of the boat. See, remember, Peter's the only one that's ever walked on water. He's not the failure in the story. But look what happens. Because it might, maybe it's happened to you. Peter gets out of the boat. And you know what happens to the storm? Nothing. The storm still rages. And so maybe somebody taught you. Oh, no, no, no. You should follow. You should become a Christian and follow Jesus. Because when you do, man, everything's going to be wonderful. You'll have more money, and you won't be sick, and your kids will start to obey you now, right? Like, it's just going to be, everything's going to be wonderful. And so you, you look out on the water in the storm, right, of, in the storms of life, and you say, Jesus, just tell me to come, and I'll come. And, and, and you look to him, and you, and, you, and you step out of the boat, and you get smacked in the face with a wave. Well, wait a minute. I didn't sign up for this. I signed up for something else. See, Peter gets out of the boat. And in getting out of the boat, he started, he's got to be thinking to himself, okay, waves are going to stop. Wind is going to stop. I'm going to walk out there to Jesus, but it doesn't. And when you step out of the boat and the waves don't stop, that's where the faith crisis and the doubt crisis usually starts. But Jesus, I thought if I stepped out of the boat, I, I thought if I, if I obeyed, I thought if I listened, I, 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 thought, I thought, Lord, you know, I, I'm getting all this pressure from, from all these men in my life, but I don't, I don't really want to succumb to that. I want to live this life of purity, God. I want to wait for the man that, that you've called me to, to wait for, Lord, but nobody's coming. Lord, I, I, I've been given sacrificially to the church. I've been going on missions trips, and I don't taste any blessing. Uh, Lord, I, I, I've been serving the church like crazy, and, but my son won't talk to me. And Maybe this whole thing isn't true. Maybe it's just not worth it. Here's what you need to see in the story. It's... It's so profoundly beautiful. If you'll, if, you'll, if you'll open your hearts to seeing it, it's profoundly beautiful. 
Peter cries out in a moment of faith, but in a moment of doubt, in a mo- the scripture says, while he was still in his moment of doubt, Jesus reached out and moves towards him. In his moment of doubt, Jesus catches him. See, for every doubter in the room, anybody who has ever said, you know, I'm not so sure this is real. I'm not so sure this is working for me. You need to hear this. Jesus is not ashamed of your doubt. Jesus is not ashamed of your struggle. Jesus looks at Peter, and he doesn't say, Peter, you of little faith, sink. You of little faith, I cast you out into the deep. You of little faith, I'm going to make an example of you before these other clowns. What does the scripture say? It says Jesus comes towards him, and in his doubts, he catches him. See, there's another story. This one the church doesn't talk about because this one is a tough story, man. It's another story about another guy that knows Jesus really well that you would say there's no way he could doubt Jesus. His name is John. Some of you know him as John the Baptist, although that wasn't really his last name. But some of you know him as John the Baptist. And if you know the story of John the Baptist, you know it begins in the Christmas story, right? John's mother, Elizabeth, is is having this baby. And Jesus' mother, Mary, who's her cousin, comes to see John's mother. And when John, in utero John, experiences somehow supernaturally in the room, in utero Jesus, this this is what the Bible teaches, in Mary's belly, Elizabeth says, my son John, in my belly, leapt at the presence of Jesus in yours. John understands who Jesus is in utero. Now, we don't, know, we don't know what happened as they grow up. The scripture doesn't detail at first. But you would imagine that they probably got together at Thanksgiving or something, right? That there was some, you know, some kind of family things going on along the way, and they had to know each other. But the next time we run into this story, we have John the Baptist, kind of this radical guy, this guy who in many ways has stepped out of the boat on his own and is serving God, down on the River Jordan, baptizing people, and here comes Jesus. What does the scripture tell us? The scripture tells us that John immediately knows who he is. And he looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, he says to everybody else, behold, here comes the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of man. And then he tells Jesus, Jesus, I am not fit to baptize you. You should baptize me. I'm not even fit to carry your sandals. You see, Jesus, um, John knows Jesus. And then believe it or not, John baptizes Jesus, and what does John and everybody else hear from the heavens? An audible voice of God. I have not heard an audible voice of God say this about any of you. (laughs) Behold, my son in whom I am well pleased. I haven't heard him say it about me, although I believe it's true, by the way, through Christ that he's well pleased with each and every one of us. But John hears an audible voice confirming what he thought about Jesus. Stepped out of the boat, following God. Knows who Jesus is, but something happens along the way. And he finds himself in a Roman pit. In jail. Execution scheduled. Head going to be taken off. And word starts to get back. See, John had some disciples of his own, and the disciples of John start to come back and tell him stories about what his cousin Jesus is doing around Jerusalem. And he says to them, hey, John, we need to let you know, you're sitting here in this pit. And all around town, your cousin... He seems to be giving sight to the blind and healing the lame. And people that can't hear, well, now they can hear. And people that are hungry, he's feeding. And just want to let you know, John. What does John do? 
Here's the scripture. Here's what it says in Luke chapter 7. John's disciples told him about all these things, and calling two of them together, he sent them to Jesus. He sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come? What? In utero, John? Are you? Wait, wait, Jesus. Are, are you the one that's to come? Or should we expect someone else? And what is John asking himself? Is this true? Is this worth it? And so the men come to Jesus. They say, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are, are you the one who's to come? Or should we expect someone else? And at that very time, it's almost as if Jesus is, is wiping John's nose in it. At some level, he said, Jesus, at that moment, he begins to cure many who had disease and sickness and evil spirits. He gives sights to, to those who are blind. And he replies to the messengers, look, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. And this is a prophecy that John would be aware of, the, the, the prophecy of the Messiah. John would understand this. He says, go back and report to John what you've seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. John, who saw it all, who heard it all, when the stuff hit the fan in his own life, Doubt sets in and he says, wait a minute. Is this true? Is this worth it? Now, this is so important, guys, especially if you're new around the church and if you're, if you're just growing your faith. Maybe, you, maybe you're thinking about joining a small group. You're starting to study the scriptures. Maybe, maybe you know, you're thinking about joining the church. You, you might maybe want to be part of the, the folks that are going to get baptized this summer. Last year we had 44 folks get baptized. I hope we'll have just as many this year. Maybe you're thinking about stepping out in faith. But as you do, you have to trust me on this. There is a day coming in your life, just like it did for Peter or John or Thomas, when you are going to look around and you you are going to see in your life the shadow of doubt and your faith won't be beyond it and you will begin to ask two questions. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Is this true? Is this worth it? I mean, now wait a minute, Jesus. I've been following you for weeks here now and the Christian man of my dreams hasn't showed up yet. Now wait a minute, Jesus. I've been giving all my money away to the church and nobody's parked a new Lexus in my driveway for it. Oh, wait a minute, Jesus. Everybody at work is backstabbing everybody. Everybody on their taxes are cutting corners. I'm trying to be Mr. Honest Engine, and I'm not getting any promotions. I'm not sure this is true. I'm not sure this is worth it. And so here's what I want to do in the, in the couple moments I have left. I want to try to answer as quick as I can those two questions for you. This Palm Sunday morning. Is it true? And is it worth it? Because our faith hinges on if the resurrection is true or not. There was a story of a Seattle airport cargo handler. It's a funny story. He was unloading pets. You know how they used to allow you to put the pets underneath the plane? And they were unloading the pets that some of the, the, the people had brought on the plane. And they found inside one of uh, the cartons uh, the dog had died. And so the, the luggage handlers panicked. They didn't know what to do. The owner showed up to claim the dog. They were afraid that something might happen on the plane. They, they didn't want you know, the airline to be sued. They didn't want to lose their jobs. So they told the owner of the dog, you know what happened is we checked the baggage. Your dog was accidentally misrouted to Phoenix. Come back tomorrow. We'll ship him back here. He'll be back tomorrow. So that gave them some time to come up with a plan. So they went down to the local pound and they found a dog that was kind of similar to the one that had died and they got it and they bought it back and 
Man shows up the next day at the airport ready to collect uh, his dog, and they bring the dog out, outbounds this dog. Puppy comes running towards him, and the man looks, and he goes, that's not my dog. And the airplane employee said, well, yes, it is. I mean, sure, he looks a little different. It's just jet lag. This happens to all the dogs. Um, and so they're going back and forth on this. And finally, they ask him, how can you be so insistent that this is not your dog? And the man said, because my dog was dead. I was just shipping him home to be buried. <laughs> you see, dead things don't come back to life. Or do they? Michael Green, he wrote a book um, called Man Alive. This is what he said. He said, Christianity does not hold that the resurrection is a, uh, one among many tenets of belief. He said, without faith in the resurrection, there is no Christianity at all. The Christian church would never have begun. The Jesus movement would have fizzled. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once you disprove it, you've disposed of Christianity. Sounds a lot like what Paul would write. Now, if you go to the Guinness Book of World Records, there you'll find the most successful lawyer in history was a guy named Sir Lionel Luckhoo. Sir Lionel Luckhoo won 245 successive murder acquittals as a defense attorney. He was knighted twice by Queen Elizabeth. He was appointed to the Queen's Council to conduct work on behalf of the Crown. And he was the guy that everybody would come to, right, if they, a towering intellect like his to help answer some of life's toughest questions. And one day, he attempted to do just that. They challenged him to take his legal skills and apply, to him, apply them to the evidence of the resurrection because it all hinges on this. Is it true? So he spent several years studying it. And he finally summarized his conclusions this way. I say unequivocally that the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so powerful that it compels acceptance by proof, which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. And he became a Christian at 64 years old. Now, what would he have looked at? I mean, if you're going to try to prove that this resurrection event is true, what would you look at? Now, there are books and books written about this. I don't have the time to go through all of that today. But all of it hinges on the fact of the empty tomb and was Jesus resurrected. Now, you need to know both Jewish and Roman sources, both Jewish and Roman traditions, these are traditions that would have been hostile to this, which would not wanted this to happen. Both traditions admit to an empty tomb. Those resources range from Josephus, who is uh, to a compilation of 5th century Jewish writers. Dr. Paul Meyer called th this positive evidence from a hostile source. It's the most strongest historical evidence. In essence, this means that a source admits a fact decidedly not in its favor. Gamaliel, he was a member of the Jewish high court, which was called the, Sanhe the Sanhedrin. He put forth the suggestion that the rise of the Christian movement was God's doing, and he would not have done that if the tomb were still occupied, or if the Sanhedrin knew where Jesus' body was. Paul Meyer observed, quote, if all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, if it is indeed justifiable, it is indeed justifiable, according to the canon of historical research, to conclude that the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, in which Jesus was buried, was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter. I mean, what if it's true? What if we're not just kind of relying on some old story that we're not certain about? 
See, there's lots, there's lots of people that will come with lots of things. I mean, in the 1800s, a theory started. It was called the swoon theory. And the swoon theory said, you know what? Yes, there's lots of sources, both biblical, uh, non-biblical, Jewish, Roman, that admit there was an empty tomb. That, but here's the deal. Christ never really died. The reason he got out of the grave, because he was never really dead to begin with. He, he was in shock from the loss of blood. Uh, his wounds that he suffered had sent him into a semi-coma. And so when they took him off the cross and they put him in the tomb, here's what happened. It's an actual theory in the 1800s. Uh, the spices and the coolness of the tomb uh, that they wrapped him in, uh, that would have woken him up. This theory states that when he came out of the grave, the disciples just assumed he was resurrected, but he had never really died. Now, in order for that theory to be true, stick with me on this. If, if that were to be true, it means that Jesus successfully survived severe beating and loss of blood, crucifixion and further loss of blood, the spear thrust into his side, again, draining the blood out of a gaping wound. That means Jesus survived entombment with somewhere between 75 and 100 pounds of spices on his already weakened body. He survived three days with no food or water. He, he woke up without any medical uh, assistance, having lost most of his blood. He stood up in his mummy-like grave clothes, which now would have been hardened like plaster. He moved what would have likely a two-ton stone. He overpowered four highly trained Roman guards with shields and daggers and javelins. And then he proceeded to walk seven miles to Emmaus on feet that had been pierced with nails and convinced everyone that he was fine and alive and not dead. You see, what if, what if it's real? Well, uh, skeptics would say, well, the resurrection, I know it's important, and that's why you need to understand the stolen body theory. See, the scripture actually talks of the stolen body theory. It's nothing new in Matthew chapter 28. After, after Jesus, after the tomb was shown to be empty, it says the chief priests met with the elders, they devised the plan, and they gave the soldiers, the Roman soldiers, a large sum of money, and they told them, look, you're to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If the report gets it to governor, we'll, that'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. That's what the Bible says in Matthew. And so you have three possibilities there about a stolen body, right? First is the Roman government stole the body. And the second would be that the Jewish authorities stole the body. But here's the deal. Why would they do that? They have no motive for an alive Jesus. They would have loved to have produced a dead body. That would have quieted everything in Jerusalem. There's no way they would have desired to ha have stolen the body and taken it away. How about the disciples? Would they have stolen the body? I mean, what would their motive be? They already had shown that they weren't highly motivated to have the unspeakable privilege of living as penniless evangelists, wandering around the rest of their lives, being beaten and whipped and thrown in jail and put to dead put to death. You know, every one of the disciples was actually in a position to know whether or not Jesus had risen from the dead. All of them were, had the opportunity to know if it was true or not. And do you know all but one of the 11 were put to death? Six of them were tortured to death through crucifixion. All of them endured persecution. And rather than recant their testimony that Jesus had appeared to them and that he was the Son of God, they all went to their deaths for it. Now you might say, people die for their faith all the time, right? That's true. What's the difference? It's this. People die for their faith if they believe it's true. People don't die for their faith if they think it's false. 
Nobody knowingly dies for a lie. And the disciples, because they had seen him, were so certain of it, they staked their lives on it and they lost it. There's other theories that float around about why that tomb might have been empty. There's the, the hallucination theory that, well, they just so wanted it to happen that they all had a hallucination that it happened. But the scripture says it was 500 witnesses. Are you aware of anybody that had uh, 500 people having the same hallucination except maybe sometime in the 60s in upstate New York? <laughs> I mean, there's no way there was 500 people all around Jerusalem that had the same hallucination. They're not group events. There's other people that say, well, no, what happened was it was the wrong tomb. They went to the wrong tomb. That's why there was no body there. Let me just explain. This was a big deal in Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea, who gave the, 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 the tomb for Jesus to be buried, and everybody around town knew who he was. And plus, if there was a wrong tomb, right, that was empty, the government, the, the Jewish leaders, the Roman authorities, they would have showed everybody the right tomb. And lastly, you have to look at the witnesses. One of the earliest records of Christ appearing um, after the resurrection, one of the first people that saw him is Paul. And this apostle, the apostle Paul, appealed to his audience's knowledge of the fact that Christ had been seen by more than 500 people at one time. In fact, many of you know the story. Paul said, 500 people have seen him alive. If you don't believe me, go ask them. If you took 500 witnesses, just to give you some perspective, some modern-day perspective on this, if you took 500 witnesses who saw Jesus alive after his death and burial, and you placed them in a courtroom, and if each of those 500 were to testify for only six minutes, only six minutes, including cross-examination, you would have 50 hours of first-hand testimony that Jesus Christ was alive. What if it's true? If this and so many other historical truths, both biblical, it is this, both biblical and extra-biblical sources, which made Professor Thomas Arnold, he was the author of History of Rome, he was appointed to the chair of modern history at Oxford, said this, quote, I have been used for many years to study the histories of other times and to examine the weight of evidence of those who have written about them. And I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than the great sign which God gave us that Christ has died and risen again from the dead. Brooke Westcott, an English scholar, said this. Church, listen to this. Taking all of the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think it might be true. So now you have a question to answer. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? I mean, I can't answer that question for you. But it seemed to be to the early disciples who were scared to death and wanted nothing to do with this until they experienced him and they poured out him to the streets because they had seen him. Because if it's true, and we know it is, we believe it to be. I mean, if it's true, do you know of anybody else that's worth following? See, when I had my doubts, one, one time I always remember, I don't know why God gave me this moment. I was driving on Route 24 over there by Allstead Farms one day, coming to work, and all of a sudden I just had one of those moments. I don't know what it was that set it off, and I was driving, and all of a sudden I started thinking, the heck are you doing right now, John? You, used, you know, this is the little voice. You used to be an investment banker. Why are you going down to this church and doing these things? Are you, 
this, do you realize what you're saying you believe? Do you, do you even know if, the, I started hearing, do you know if it's true? And you know what I do when that voice comes? I just walk myself right through this evidence again because my faith is not just in a person. My faith is in a historically provable event, the only one of its kind. And if it's true, here's what I said to myself as I drove by Allstate's. What the heck else am I going to do with my life? Can you name something that would be more valuable than this? So you need to answer that question. Because if it's true, I think it's worth it. I mean, you have to decide with that relationship, right? Are you just, are you just going to replace God's plan for your life with your own? Oh, you know what? I know God's plan is that I might stick it out with my wife. And, but I don't know. That girl down at the office is a lot better looking. Is it worth it? I think it might be. I think generations of children that would follow after you, that witnessed your marriage and your faithfulness to God and your wife and to Christ, I think it might be. Your money, your time, is it worth it? I think it might be. Because if Jesus Christ has really risen from the dead, what else are you going to give your time and your money to and your effort and your belief? What else are you going to give it to? I'm going to ask the band to come up. As I do, I just have to close with a story. It used to be a pretty famous story in Christian circles. Uh, It hasn't been talked about a lot in the church, but it's the story of a missionary called Jim Elliott. And Wayne was telling me, Wayne Cole, Wayne who's coming up, you could talk to him afterwards. Wayne actually knows the Elliott family. Um, He he, uh, has been in in churches with him. He's actually been to Jim Elliott's grandson's house. Jim Elliott was a, a Christian missionary in the 50s. He had a lot going for him. He was a top-of-the-class type of guy, but he had always felt called um, by God to get out of the boat. And so Jim Elliott decided he was going to follow God, and he felt as if he was called to the Akua Indian tribe. I know some of you know the story in Ecuador. The Akua Indian tribe was considered by most to be the most unreached people group on earth. Um, back in the day, you wouldn't say this anymore, but they were called savages. It, it was a, it's a politically incorrect term. But they, they had been almost untouched by any outside uh, influences, and anybody that tried to kind of infiltrate into that tribe had known to be killed. Had known to be killed. But Jim Elliott and four other friends decided that that's who God was calling them to. And they began to fly plane trips over the Akua and drop things down to the Akua, food and resources and all the rest. And over a period of time, they began to land on the beach by the Akuans. And they would come out, and for a few days, this is actually in his journal, for a few days, they were actually having good ministry there. And they thought, this is, this Jesus, you know, Jim thought to himself, I know who Jesus is, I believe he is who he said he was, and I think this is worth it. And he spent his, his, his days with those four other missionaries on that beach. And one, one morning, he's, he, talked to, he left in his journal a story to his wife about how two Indian women had come out and, uh, of the bushes and they were ministering to him. And that was the last thing that's recorded because um, what happened was a whole tribe of Akuan men surrounded them with spears and killed all five of them. Their bodies were actually later found washed up down the river. Interestingly enough, each of the men had a gun on. But they had made a pact between each other that they would never shoot in a coup who had not come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. They would rather die. And the story gets told that when they went and pulled um, Jim Elliott's, you can find this online, by the way, you can actually see his journal. It's uh, housed at Wheaton College. When they found Jim's journal, he had penned in it this. Maybe it's an answer to the question, is it worth it? Jim wrote... He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain 
that which he cannot lose. I think it's true. I can't speak for you, but I can only speak for me. And excuse the language, but I think it's damn well worth it. Lord, like one of the earlier followers that came to you and said, Lord, heal my son. And, and you said, with, with faith, all things are possible. And he looked at you and he said, I believe. But then knowing his heart, he said, and help me in my unbelief. This is Palm Sunday. That's our prayer, Lord. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Let's close this song together.